0: Hey guys, Dane here with the Dark Room Podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. In today's episode, we chat with entrepreneur author, investor, and CPO of Adobe, Scott Belsky. As the former founder and CEO of Behance, Belsky built one of the largest platforms for showcasing creative work and has spent most of his career building tools to empower content creators. Before being acquired by Adobe in 2012, we hear how Scott and his team navigated and ultimately organized the world of design. We dive deep into Scott's vision for the future of design and how Adobe will usher in the era of augmented reality, With initiatives like Project Arrow, a powerful AR authoring tool for designers to make immersive content. As an early investor in Uber, Warby Parker, Pinterest, Sweetgreen, and Periscope, Scott has an eye for transformative technologies and businesses that will lead us into the future. The future. We are so excited to share this episode and recommend it for anyone looking to maximize their creative output. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Scott Belsky. Welcome to the Dark Room Podcast, where you'll get to hear from the best full-time creators on the planet. From starting out to where they are now and everywhere in between.
1: Welcome to the Dark Room.
0: Scott Belsky, thank you so much for hanging out with
1: me. Thanks for having me.
0: Jumping into it, you know, you're you're a guy that that obviously wears a lot of incredible hats, right? Entrepreneur, investor, author, executive. I'm really interested though, which one of those is of most surprise to you? Looking looking back in retrospect, if you could if you could have a, a time machine to go back 15 years and say, all right, here's the four things that, that you're gonna do well, which one wouldn't you believe?
1: Um that's a good question. I mean I think that they are they were all uphill learning curves and Um, I would say probably the author side, just because it was so daunting, the idea of writing, you know, one, let alone two books. Um, so I, I would say that probably was the, was the one that, you know, maybe surprised me the most. And, uh, and also for many years as an entrepreneur, the, I never even had the notion of an exit in my mind for the first few years. I kind of thought this would be a lifestyle business and, and, um, and that's why we actually never raised venture capital for you know five years. Yeah. Um, so I, I would also say that 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 part uh, you know changed and faster than I realized, and became you know the company in some ways became something I never imagined.
0: Yeah. And when you were, you know, going to school at Cornell and then, you know, Harvard, did you see this, uh, you know, this opportunity to start Behance? Did you see that kind of blossoming anywhere along the lines? You know, was it a, was it a long drawn out plan or or what was the the start of
1: that? Well, listen, I mean, I've always believed that whatever is our genuine interest is also our sixth sense, right? The things that you are interested in, that you're putting your attention towards, that you're following, assuming you're not to influenced by trends or short-term rewards that's the thing that's going to ultimately guide you towards an extraordinary outcome for me i was fascinated by how disorganized the creative world was i became very passionate about the potential of creative people if they got their shit together yeah and i and i basically said you know i want to commit my professional life to helping creative people make ideas happen and it was at a time where every conference and book was about creativity and how to be more creative, and I figured that's ridiculous. Like that's the last thing these people need is to be more creative. They need to be more productive. And I identify with that myself. I mean, I had a lot of ideas. I was always perpetually frustrated with the fact that I was never making any of them happen. And so there was a very big meta um, meta thing for me around helping other people make their ideas happen as an idea that I wanted to make happen while well, writing a book about making ideas happen, mm-hmm. which was in itself an idea that I wanted to make happen. <laughs> and, you know, and I've always tried to seek in my life meta circumstances, you know, where all these sorts of things come together. Um, that's, that's, that's the magic for me.
0: Yeah, you know, Mark Manson has an incredible book, The Art of Not Giving a Fuck,
1: that I,
0: I took away kind of along the same lines, this idea of just do something um, that, that talks about a lot and I, I feel like it's kind of the same thing where no matter what you just have to start doing something and once you do it these other things will fall in place including inspiration and you know including drive to to further a product or further a business or as a freelancer or whatnot but like just getting started as well is so crucial to you know what's to come and if you sit there and marinate on it for too long then you know you could you know sabotage by self doubt or you know just not being uh methodical in time
1: totally agree and i and i I very much think that you know every incremental set of steps you take gives you not only um, more proximity to the steps you're going to need to take in the future because we're closer but also just gives you momentum and sometimes that's the hardest thing to get going
0: yeah and you know I've heard you talk a lot about creativity and organization and uh I think that that is so gigantic. And also, like, in my own freelance career, uh, organization is something that I have to constantly, you know, seek and and study and practice. And like you said, like, the creativity is there. Like, that is so common, right? And, like, the organization and the business side of things is hard to come by. Uh, you know, like, what what's some of your experience with that and like some lessons that you've learned along the way of like being able to stay fully organized and and using that to to propel your career.
1: Well, I think um, at a macro level, you know, my belief is that you have to always be very optimistic about the future, but very pessimistic and paranoid about the present. Yeah, you have to have this belief that nothing that you're talking about will ever get done unless it's captured. That every task is likely to slip unless you're obsessed over it that anything you're celebrating is likely already passe and you need to kind of focus forward as opposed to, you know, celebrate what's behind you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that there's always something around the corner that will surprise you unless you're prepared. And I, I just, you know, I, I try to have an equal balance as a leader, you know, you're trying to do both and, uh, and you need to. So I would say that, you know that is. And, and and underlying that means, you know, I'm very focused on t- capturing tasks and focused on setting milestones for myself. I, you know, I try to share my ideas with other people so that mm-hmm. they hold me accountable to them. Um, you know, there's all sorts of tricks and practices over the years that just help me stay on the, on the narrow path, you know?
0: Yeah. And like jumping into those uh, as examples, because I've heard you talk, you know, a lot about self-rewarding and, and, you know, some of the, the, uh, the really cool things that you do specifically, like while writing and having a playlist that, you know, you can only play in certain, certain times and shutting that off. I've also heard you talk about like, you know, certain, let's say like snacks or, or things like that. Um, but like, I think that that is so important, especially when you're working solo and it's hard because, you know, there's not a lot of people in the room to, to bounce ideas off of, or to get excited with, uh, you know, like. Speaking specifically from like a, a freelancer or a solo, you know, creative entrepreneur, like what are some some examples of you know self rewarding and like why is that so beneficial in your opinion?
1: Well, we are we're stripped of all short term rewards when we embark on a very long term creative venture or pursuit. You know, the short term rewards that we depend upon from grade school, getting checks on the tests and then grades in the course and parents' accolades and all that kind of stuff goes away when you're embarking on a five to seven, 10-year journey and no one really understands why or where you're headed. Yeah. And as a result, you need to supplement yourself with other forms of short-term rewards. We can't fool ourselves into thinking that the long-term vision is enough to motivate us on a daily basis. It simply isn't. It may help us take the leap ourselves. It may help us hire other people and encourage them to join us. But then on a day-to-day, week to week, month to month basis, when you're feeling stagnant, when you're surrounded by headlines that make it seem like everyone else is making more progress than you, you've got to short circuit your reward system to keep yourself engaged and feeling like you're making progress. And yeah. so there's all kinds of fun things, you know, that, that I've done over the years, whether it's you know making up sort of incremental goals and having like team celebrations um, when we achieve them. Um, the team, you know, was obsessed with trying to get me to eat meat because I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> and so they made me, you know, they made me to agree, agree to eat certain types of meat in certain ways when we would reach certain milestones. Yeah. Um, you know, and I took one for the team. So <laughs> yeah.
0: doesn't that yeah, go against I, the rules?
1: I, it does, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what are you going to do? So yeah. I think these are the types of things that, um, you know, that, that you have to be creative with. And, you know, the other thing I, I would say is that even, you know, even if you're, you are creating these short-term rewards when there aren't any, and these milestones and celebrating them, you also have to be a great narrator of the journey to your team. Yeah. The analogy I use is almost like driving a, a very, very long road trip with the with the whole team in the back seat, with the windows blacked out, and no one knows where they are yeah. or whether they're making progress or not all along the journey. And you as the narrator driving, you have to kind of tell Always. Where are we? Are we passing state lines? We're, you know, we're in traffic, but don't worry. I see some clearing ahead. You know, you have to narrate your team through this journey constantly or else they're going to feel lost. And that's oftentimes why teams disband and, you know, great ideas don't happen.
0: Yeah. I love that metaphor. You know, is the end of that road trip being acquired? Is it going public? What was it like when Adobe started knocking on the door? Like, what is that transition, you know, going from from building up this incredible team to actually having Adobe sit in the room with you and, you know, want to acquire you?
1: We had relationships with a number of big companies and the the playbook that I ascribe to and the one I encourage other entrepreneurs to think about it as well, is that anyone is a potential partner and you always want these partners to know what you're up to, how excited and motivated you are. You want them to look at you as a leader of the segment and, um, and you want them to kind of come to you and, uh, and, and want to, you know, want to, want to proactively work with you. So whether it was Adobe or LinkedIn or Autodesk, I would uh, see leaders at these companies routinely over the years and talk about what we could do together. For LinkedIn, we powered creative portfolio display. You know, for Autodesk, I would go to their leadership summits and talk to their customers about, you know, trends in the creative industry. And and uh, and with Adobe, we were always, you know, talking about different things we could do together. Um, there were, over that period of time, some acquisition attempts, and it just didn't make sense. Yeah. You know, we were too, too early, and we had bold aspirations, and I felt each time like they were considering us as either a marketing channel... Or you know some sort of um, uh, sort of marginalized version of what we actually were. Um, now, of course, that changed when the company decided to go from software to subscription. Mm-hmm. Realized they needed to have stronger relationships with their customers, and then the company suddenly realized a big insecurity was not having a community. Right. I mean, we needed to have a we Adobe needed to have a community um, of customers that we could really understand and connect with and learn from day by day by day. Uh, and that was a big turning point in those conversations, and suddenly I felt like, wow, actually, Behance is 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 core to the strategy of Adobe, um, you know, as opposed to uh, ancillary.
0: Yeah, and so you know, when you guys are are you know having those conversations about you know the cloud essentially and, and it becoming. You know, more of a subscription, and also just like giving creators the tools that maybe not, maybe they didn't have access before. You know, myself included. Like now, today, like I use Adobe every single day of my life. And before this happened, I, you know, I wouldn't really be able to use Adobe. So like it's changed the lives of so many freelancers and people have so much access to it. And from, you know, from anywhere in the world, what were those early steps in getting, you know, the cloud going and, and, you know, some important aspects that you guys wanted to follow through with?
1: Well, I mean, I think that the, this is an incredible migration that the company went through. And, um, and part of it was delivering a totally new level of value through our products. So thinking about, you know, what if fonts as a service could automatically, you know, populate through every product you use. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and, if you have a, if you load up a file with missing fonts, it could automatically replace them. You know, what if we could build something that allows you to create an element, you know, capture something like colors on an, on mobile with Adobe capture, and then have those colors show up in all of your color palettes across all of your desktop products you're starting to imagine like what a service version of all of these products could mean for customers, including the obvious things like more frequent updates and you know and and seamless you know kind of making sure you, your software is the latest and stuff like that now it's taken us a long time to really get this working in the right way, yeah. and I think we're only starting now to disproportionately deliver that value to customers and you know, and sometimes I feel like when I'm meeting with customers, I'm saying, listen, like, I hear you. Like, I, it's just, this is maybe coming a couple of years too late, but this is what we now have. And I think we've actually reached a turning point now where now we're going to start delivering a cloud first experience. Um, we've already announced that we're coming out with Photoshop on iPad, which is actually under underneath. That's a big deal because it means that cloud documents, like when you're creating a Photoshop document on desktop, you could actually be creating a cloud Photoshop document that shows up on iPad and then updates on desktop in real time, um, which uners, you know unleashes a lot of other possibilities. And it's, it's just fun to like be, everyone talks about the joy of starting creating a new product from scratch. But what I find is just as fun is like bringing an old product into the next generation.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, when, when you guys are rolling out new products, or are also just, you know, doing updates for current, how much do you rely on feedback from the creative community compared to feedback, you know, internally from, you know, executives and people that are working on products day in and day out?
1: Well, I think, it, I think it's mostly the former, you know, at the end of the day, nothing matters more than, you know, what our customers are saying. This is the natural selection prioritization, yeah. right? Whatever you think as a team is important, the truth is, is whatever your customers are struggling with, like that is, that's your compass. And so I really am always encouraging my team to you know just make sure that we're tuning into this more adeptly. And um, you now that being said, sometimes you have to you know, bring the customer to a place they don't even know they need to be, you know, and that's, uh, that's something that I'm also, You know, pushing for is you know what are the foundational things we need to do that are important for the next three to five years that maybe aren't obvious now.
0: Yeah, and like you know, speaking of that, like your partnership with Apple, you know, Project Arrow, where you guys are going to help designers, you know, build augmented reality and build around augmented reality, is Project Arrow, you know, something that's along those lines of a you know a, a near future, but definitely like something that will be developed in the next three to five years that you're working on a lot right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean we we believe that AR can be as big if not bigger than the web and it makes sense because think about it as you walk down the street you don't you don't google every single store you pass. Right. But with with AR glasses on you'd see information about every store you pass. So in essence, you know the the real world will be much bigger than the web when it comes to digital experiences and uh and at the end of the day we need to enable creatives to put what they've made before and are making now into this new third dimension, right? This this new immersive experience that everyone's going to be expecting. And, uh, and it's, it's fun to think about that.
0: Well, because now, you know, at least from, from my point of view, which is like one that's not at all around augmented reality, but like, to me, I, it's still kind of a novelty in a way of just like where it's at in progression. What are some examples of, interactions that, that we're going to start having soon with, you know, consumers and, and AR, like, what are some things that are either rolling out, you know, soon or things that are, you know, kind of like you said, like in the three to five year plan, maybe with project arrow, but like, what are, you know, some of the the heavy hitters that we're going to get used to, you know, from a day to day that will become the norm in like five years?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the, um, I think that there will, we'll see some particular use cases pop up that, just our, a 10X step function, you know, 10X saving, saving time. So for example, you know, let's say you walk into a, um, you walk into a store like a Foot Locker or right. a, a, a Nike store and you're looking at all these shoes. And of course there's always the question, which ones do they actually have in my size? You know, I'm looking at all these shoes, but then typically the person will come and then measure you and then they'll go to the back and they'll come back and be like, Oh, I'm sorry. I don't have that size. And you look at another shoe and you go through the whole thing all over again. Right. But, but then, but what if there's a little sign that just says, you know, scan this QR code and then you'll get a viewer on your phone and it will, sh- it will put an X or a check on every single shoe in the store. And, uh, and that basically just tells you if the size that you have is in stock or not. Right. Okay. And suddenly you have this like six sense as you're walking around, you literally know everything that you can and can't look at based on what's available, what's available. And then, um, and it's, you know, that's like, a, oh my gosh, like that just saved me so much time. And so imagine that example, but for any type of retail experience, um, every type of travel experience, you know, every type of getting lost, you know, navigation experience, whatever else. And if you have enough of those, you get that velocity of use case where people are constantly raising their phone, you know, to try to interpret the world around them and have a more productive experience. And then before you know it, people's arms get tired. And, uh, and, you know, there may be a new device that comes around that does that for you.
0: Do you see, you know, do you see something like that kind of stunting the growth of these other, you know, creative, like visual elements that we already have around us all the time? You know, whether that be graphic design, photo, video, like, do you see AR and maybe even VR kind of replacing traditional mediums that we know and use right now all the time?
1: A hundred percent. Well, first of all, um, I think that AR will be more personalized than the web. I mean, you'll you know when you walk into a store, you'll see completely different things than when I look into a store. Yeah, because it will be based on who we are and you know what our needs are and everything else. Um, and since it's a new medium, it's easy to kind of personalize than retrofitting an old medium with like AI and new methods of personalization. And uh, and also, it's just I think what's also interesting about AR is it's it's actually a little more human than the web. Um, when you're seeing what look like physical objects around you, there's just like a, a an intuition about how they should behave, how to interact with them that isn't as obvious when you go to a website or a mobile app. So I'm actually excited about that as well.
0: Yeah, and also you know the design aspect, which will know give designers even more opportunities which is you know huge but like in your in your future design seminar you know you talk about the fact that designers are like really at the center of this gigantic swing of of you know social content and there's just so much room for creation do you see ways that designers can like really jump into this time period right now and capitalize on the fact that like there are so many opportunities, but there's also a right and a wrong way, you know, to go about that.
1: You know, it's a great question. And um, I just believe that the best creatives across all disciplines are always spending 10% of their time you know, pushing the edge. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to, if only for their own creativity, they're trying to take new tools, understand new, you know, new ways of, Design new ways of prototyping, new ways of this, new ways of that, and that is the exercise, right? That that determines which creatives end up being at the forefront of the next big thing, and mm-hmm. which ones aren't.
0: Yeah.
1: And Adobe has a long history of this. With you know, we helped graphic designers um, that were physical graphic designers go into digital graphic design. We helped digital graphic designers go into web. We helped web designers go into mobile. And, you know, now we're thinking, okay, let's help people in the two dimensional mobile kind of go into a three dimensional AR and immersive. And it's like it's always the same thing. You know, there's a cohort of people that are first adopters. Those are the folks who lead. And then eventually everyone else comes kicking and screaming. And uh, I think that's part of the, you know, part of the evolution of new technology. But it's an exciting one. It's so cool to be involved with that.
0: Well, yeah, and you know, to use your book, The Messy Middle, as an example and talking about like, you know, like what that what that can even mean for, you know, a freelancer and you know, obviously a founder and and a startup and and you know, CEO and all that. But, you know, as a freelancer, like I feel like I am constantly in the messy middle. And I know I'm probably not alone with that. Like, what's your thoughts, maybe even experience with being in the messy middle, but seeing the light above it and like kind of getting a little bit of that fresh breath of air. And maybe you sink back down in the middle a little bit, but like what, what are your you know thoughts and, and maybe experience with like kind of trying to claw upwards and out of that middle?
1: Yeah. It's kind of like the difference between when you're running, you know, just being like, Oh my God, this is too hard. And then stopping versus when you're running being like, I know what it's like. I know that this is the hard part. I know it gets easier. I know how good I feel when I'm done. And I'm just going to just keep moving. And it's the dis- distinct difference between those those two. And uh, and and part of like the muscle memory you get from having endured some journeys with a lot of volatility is that faith that it's just literally part of the process. And also, at some point, you can even get excited by the inner volatility because you know that that's what's going to differentiate your outcome so now when i'm involved with uh and especially the startup teams that i work with um, as an investor and advisor when they hit like these major obstacles these Mm -hmm. you know new new lows in their messy middle i always try to remind them like guys this this is what this is why others won't be able to do this also like you should get excited right you you now have this obstacle that if you get across everyone else is like gonna have a hard time. And this is why this is worth doing. This is why you're gonna, once you succeed, have something that's defensible, like get excited about this as opposed to simply just daunted by it. And that's the type of thing you have to counter, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I feel as well that, you know, there's a lot of people that, that that might be the time when they realize that maybe what they're doing is not what they're passionate about, or maybe their self-awareness gets put in check, which is huge. And like, you know, I mean, if you could buy self-awareness, it'd be the most, you know, popular thing to buy on Amazon. But when you know that your trajectory is not a place that you want to go, like I've heard you talk about, like as long as you're as as, as long as you're going towards, you know, the place that you know you want to be then you should be okay. Right. Has your relationship with self-awareness always been, you know, a good one and a positive one, or, you know, has it ever happened where, you know, your self-awareness has put you in check and, you know, it's really either opened your eyes up to like, you know, something you don't want to do and, you know, steered you in, you know, a good direction or just a different direction.
1: It's happened many times over, over the years. And, you know, these are the humbling moments where something didn't go right or something didn't come across properly, you know what's gold to me is when someone I work with tells me that something could have been better or different or that I came across wrong or that I wasn't clear. I mean this is feedback that is simply gold, right? You 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 get it, it makes you so much more effective. And yet ironically, we typically don't ask for it because we don't want to hear it. And the more senior we get, the less likely people are to share it with us. I have so much value for the people that I work with today who You know, in some cases, have the courage because they work for me to just call me and say, like, hey, you know, this actually didn't make sense or this isn't clear or, you know, this you should have said this way. And uh, that's just so useful. So, um, and, you know, and, and if you're confident enough, you take it as data and then you incorporate it, you know, into who you are. So I always encourage everyone at any point in their career to recognize that feedback is a form of compensation. And the earlier in your career, the more valuable of a form of compensation it is because it helps you triangulate your potential in the future, like where you should go and and what you're, you know, it just, it, it determines everything. And, you know, in, in the early, early stage of our careers, we should be just trying to get enough money to live. Otherwise, we should be optimizing for the type of team that will make us better. And then, of course, later on, you start to optimize a little bit more for um, maybe income and and experience that you want to have and whatever else, but you have to still remember that comp- that feedback is still a valuable form of compensation.
0: You personally, have you, you know, have you ever found yourself kind of being more of a self-critic? Like, how, like, do you look at that internally sometimes and help that drive you or do you look for outside, you know, outside motivation more so?
1: Yeah, I think I'm more of a, an introvert. And so I do actually, you know, I'm more competitive with myself than I am with anyone else. Um, and uh, you know, and I just I've seen time and time again that, you know, the more you push yourself, the harder you work, you know, the more you feel you deserve the outcome. You know, it, it maybe like part of you know, part of life is just about, you know, working hard so you feel you deserve it. Yeah. And uh and maybe, you know, when you look around and you know, you find people that are either like trust fund babies that have cho- chosen not to really work hard, um, and others who, you know, had something handed to them, uh, and as a result, did not work extraordinarily hard, and then sort of start to be depressed or don't appreciate what they have in their lives, maybe it's because their, you know, proportion of hard work to feeling they deserve it is out of, uh, out of you know, out of whack. And so actually, you know, whether you, whether you have the support system of, you know, I came from a middle to upper middle class family, and I had parents who helped me pay for college and stuff, I feel really privileged to have had that support system, um, and I think, but co- to, to complement that, I feel like I have to really make sure that every, you know, every event, I feel I worked hard enough to feel like I deserve it, and, um, you know, I think we all, regardless of what our upbringings were, and regardless of kind of what we come from, or, or, you know, the help we had, it's like, let's just make, you know, just push yourself to work as hard as you can to, to the point where you feel you deserve the outcome, the, the, or the, you know, the way you're living, and i think that's like very much at least in my own life a path to happiness
0: there's a lot of back and forth i feel with people that wear you know several hats and do several things well and people that dedicate all their time and energy into you know one path and one avenue and sticking with that And, you know, obviously, you know, you've done the former, which is kind of along the lines of more of like what I get interested in, but then, you know, I read certain things or I, I hear certain talks or see certain people talk about like sticking with that one thing. Like what, what keeps you motivated to, to continue, you know, to do so many different things, but also do so many different things at a high level.
1: You know, it's, it, to me, it's, it's, it comes down to simply the desire to feel fully utilized. I mean one of the mistakes I made in my career where for a small period of time was being a full-time investor. Yeah. You know, it was something I've always loved doing. I love it working with early stage teams, advising and supporting them and investing in them you know since i um, since I had some capital to invest uh, and what I found was that when I went into that full time I felt very unfulfilled. I felt like I was in finance and I felt like I was being a transactional driven Person as opposed to like doing what I love doing, and even though it was a great prestigious job in Silicon Valley, it was not. I didn't feel fully utilized, and that means I didn't perform well. You know, and and so I, since then, I've kind of had this view that whether it's your job and or your side hustle and all the other things you do, you know, when you when you feel like all of your muscles are being used, personally and professionally, it's not just about work. It's also about your time as a, you know, in my case, as a dad and husband and friend, and you feel like your muscles are all being used. Like you just, there's a, for me at least, I feel most happy, and um, and so that's like I'm always in the in the pursuit of a, you know, a mix of engagements in my life as a portfolio of stuff that makes me feel fully utilized.
0: Yeah, and you know, I've heard you talk about how you can look at years in a business or even, you know, years personally as, you know, chapters in your life. And is there any, you know, specific chapter that stands out to you that was a good chapter for, let's say like personal growth and like really growing as, uh, as the entrepreneur that you are? Like, have you, have you had any years in your life that have been the most impactful or, or transitional?
1: There definitely have been moments of inflection, many you know, that, are, that were lessons learned the hard way or, you know, throughout the course of Behance, there certainly were real like growing pains, if you will. And again, like my transition into Adobe and then out of Adobe and then back into Adobe and, you know, in some of the, uh, some of the startups I've worked really closely with or been on the board with that I've either worked or haven't worked. And I mean, there's a lot of those inflection points. And, uh, you know, I, choose, I always do try to do like a post-mortem. Um, of my own process. I mean, even recently, there was one startup that um, that I was involved in that I did like a big postmortem. I just decided to share it online because first of all, I don't think enough enough people share postmortems of stuff that didn't work. Right. Like everyone sort of shovels it under the rug and pretends it doesn't happen. But this is like, this is, again, it's gold for the community as a whole. And um, And the feedback I've gotten on it from like other people exploring the idea in different ways has been great. Maybe I'll make another investment in the space that will, you know that will actually work. So, I think that's you know part of what you have to do is mine those inflections for every lesson there is to be learned. You know, share those lessons um, as a way to not only help others but also again it helps you. Um, it it help fills your platform and it helps people relate to you. I think that's part of the puzzle.
0: Yeah, when it comes to being in the moment, you know, with somebody as busy as you are and you know having so many meetings and projects and, and just things in the pipeline. Is it, is it tough for you to stay in the moment? Do you have to remind yourself a lot to stay in there? Or is it kind of like a muscle that you've been developing, but like, how do you, how do you really fully like embrace, you know, the, the now, so to speak?
1: It's a great question. It's something I'd probably still want to become better at, but I do try to be very present with the people that I'm with. And, um, you know, and I, I, I have like a, I have a, a, a constant like effort to context switch. And to then, like, you know, level set, be like, where am I? Who am I with? What am I trying to solve? Yeah. And, uh, and you, but you have to be able to, I mean, if, especially if you're leading a big organization, you know, of, and with a team of thousands of people, you know, you're, you're going from one meeting to the next, you're addressing a large group, and you're going to solve a problem, and then you're dealing with another issue. And it's like, you know, unless you have that capability of really you know, rapid context switching and ability to be fully present to make great decisions you know, you're you're, 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 way out of your zone. So that's always something I want to be, be able to be better at.
0: And then, you know, when it comes to, you know, optimization on, you know, a personal side, do you have any, you know, types of routines, like daily routines, maybe a morning routine, or maybe even when you get home, like, do, you know, are there, are there like sections of your day that you schedule out that are just for you and just to like, kind of get back into like the normal Scott Belsky, Hey, I'm a human being type of feeling. Do you have any of that? <laughs>
1: Oh man, the plane, the plane is my, yeah. uh, you get on the plane and you've got, you know, I have, I have a lot of cross country commutes that I do. Yeah. So that time is precious to me. I can be alone. I can look out the window, uh, and I can just, you know, process. And instead of reacting to, uh, constant inflow of stuff, living other people's to-do lists, uh, instead I can just kind of crunch three to five things that I think are most important over the long haul. And I can hopefully come to some, you know, genuine insights that can, can really move the needle. So I really cherish that time. I think it's interesting in life now. You know, we used to in past we used, in the past we used to be forced to disconnect just through circumstance. You know, driving somewhere, walking somewhere. Yeah. That was just like life's natural way of forcing us to deep think. Now, of course, with our hyper connected lifestyle, we're never forced anymore. We're always connected. And so as a result, I do believe that disconnection is a competitive advantage in the hyperconnected world.
0: Yeah, I love that. those
1: of us that are able to disconnect consistently and churn through deeper problems in a deeper way are going to have an advantage. And so I think it's, we all have to force ourselves to have that chunk of time.
0: What does uh you know what does inspiration look like for you when it comes to you know seeking it whether it's in the form of you know reading a book or you know getting a newsletter or you know ways maybe even listening to music right like what inspires you still and like how often do you get to tap into that how often do you get to read how often do you get to you know allow yourself to be inspired to you know help further grow your uh, you know your world
1: well i, I try to you know, allow time to follow curiosities as much as I can. I mean, we're all very busy and I'm sure we all want to do more. I certainly do. Uh, Every time I do take the time to read a book, I just, you know, I get so much out of it and I'm always saying to myself, gosh, like I'm jealous of these people that can read (laughs) a book every week, you know? Uh, And, And I wish I could, I wish I could do that. But I also feel like I'm not in search of more, ideas as much as I'm in, in pursuit of making ideas that I've already got or my teams already have happen. Right. And I guess, you know, I, I've sort of shifted the balance of energy towards the execution at this point of my life, but I'll never, you know, never be, I have an insatiable desire for knowledge and I'll never, I'll never, I'll never quench it. I'm, I, I'm sure that is true.
0: Looking into the future, which I feel like kind of goes against living in the present and living in the messy middle because if you look too far ahead, then you may, you know, get sidetracked on on what's happening right in front of you. But like, do you, do you ever think about the decade from now or, or 20 years from now, or are you pretty much, you know, fully, like you explained it, driving cross country with, with the blinders up in front, or do you, do you see where a lot of this can be going?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think that one of my partners at Benchmark used to say that the best investors, you know, have a great understanding of the present. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I that really hit me and I, I do really try to ground myself, you know, as I think about the future with like, what are the present realities and and recognize that the, you know, the, the difference between a great investor and a really bad investor typically is like, you know, being a few years off, right. Of, of something that is obvious to, to most. So I, I think that, uh, you know, the understanding of the present day, like why people are behaving in certain ways, you know, what's in the zeitgeist, you know, what are people worried about, I, I think is is really important to make current products and ideas stick. And I also love thinking about what will, you know, where, what are the macro kind of end states of some of the new technologies that are out there right now. Um, that's one of the reasons I love that. I love Black Mirror, you know, that it's just a, such an incredible show because it, if anyone who's listening hasn't watched it, you must. It's just such a great way of forecasting the the impact of one particular technology, you know, many years later. It's a real fun exercise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That show was so well done too, man. Um, yeah. It, it, it's, you know, that's such a, it's such a big thing. It's such a real conversation to like look into this, you know, into the future of what these tools are going to do to us. 10 years ago, if you look at the internet where it was then, you know, what it's become now. It's insane to see the trajectory, and like you know, twenty years from now, like who knows what's going to be going on? And I'm sure, obviously, AR and VR, like you said, are going to be completely around us. But you can't look too far ahead. Like I've heard you talk about, like you know, if you're if you're going to be, uh, you know, talking about flying cars, like that doesn't mean you know you're going to be making flying parking lots for cars, like too early on. You still have to right, stay exactly. in the moment, and you know, eventually it will come. And that's so important for like every you know, every creative line of work too, you know, not just, you know, on the super high tech side, right? Like, like any, yep. any type of creative entrepreneur can really take that to heart and like, make sure that no matter what their timing is, is on, because at the end of the day, like that is one going to separate you from everybody else, but it's going to be your most, you know, important asset that you can contribute to that time period.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Thanks again for coming on, Scott. I really appreciate it. Uh, can you let people know how they can stay connected with you and stay up to date with things that you're doing, things that Adobe's doing, and you know everything that you have coming up?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm always sharing ideas and, and some of the new projects in real time on you know just at Scott Belsky on Twitter. So I, I welcome folks to connect there, and and uh, we have some exciting new uh, for those of uh, us that are creatives in the creative industry. There's some really exciting stuff coming in early November. Um, from uh, from Adobe at our Adobe Max conference, which I'm excited about, and uh, you know, and I think that, um, and, and you know, for those of you that haven't checked out the messy middle, I'd love to hear what people think. It's definitely been seven year process, you know, putting some of these insights together for people managing the volatility of projects.
0: Awesome, Scott. Thank you very much, man. I really, really appreciate you giving us the time. My pleasure. That'll do it, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out and checking out that episode with Scott. You can find Scott on his website www.scottbelsky.com. You can find him on Twitter at Scottbelsky. You can say hey to us at Darkroom. You can say hey to me at Dane Diener. And we will see you guys soon. We appreciate you. Please uh, rate, review, like, comment, share with your friends, all that good stuff. Um, we have more exciting episodes for you, and we have a lot of exciting episodes to go back and check out. So thanks again, guys. Really appreciate it. And we will see you all next week.